Okay, I think we are rolling. And you can hear me fine and everything? Yes. Okay. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in and welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Shoshana Jacobs. Hi. Um, <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself, where you, where you study, what you do? Just a, a quick little... Sure, yeah. Um, so my name is Shoshana Jacobs. Uh, I am currently working and thinking and being at the University of Guelph in the Department of Integrative Biology. Um, and uh, I fairly recently became an associate professor, so yay tenure. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, before that, I was uh, I was um, doing some different things, lots of different types of jobs uh, before settling into to an academic life, um, and uh, certainly it 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 resonates with me as as a way to to finish my career. So I think this is where I'm going to stay. Awesome. Yeah. So you are at Guelph now, so just down the street. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're doing biology. And as I was going through some of your work, it seems like um, Seabirds, yes? Seabirds, yeah. <laughs> okay, has it always been seabirds or? No. <laughs> <laughs> so a long time ago, somebody uh, told me that there are two types of researchers. There are researchers, especially within the, the domain of biology, but I think that this kind of framework might resonate outside of the discipline, um, that there are those who specialize in a certain species or a certain habitat or a certain region. Um, and then there are those that specialize in methods and can apply them to different scenarios or different species, regions, or habitats. So I uh, thought that it would be fun to be able to travel and go to different places. Uh, my brain tends to not be able to focus too much on the same thing for very long, um, though I am very grateful that, that there are people in the world that can do that. Um, <laughs> that's not me. So uh, I specialized in methods. Um, and so uh, originally I was working on marine mammals. Um, and harbor seals for, for the beginnings of my academic career uh, and um, quickly realized that if I was going to transfer that over to my PhD, it would be more difficult because marine mammals are notoriously unpredictable in their distribution and I wanted to make sure that I would get a PhD when I was done. <laughs> so I switched to birds um, because of uh, the relative ease, I'm not saying it's easy, but the relative ease uh, with which it is to study them. Okay, is that like a, a migratory pattern thing? Like are they more predictable in that sense or? Yeah, so they're more predictable in many senses, but you're right. Um, migration um, and sort of the, the traditional routes that they have established uh, definitely allows us to, to more accurately sort of predict where they're gonna be or where they're going. Um, the other thing, though, for me that was important about seabirds specifically, um, and not necessarily then uh, applicable to all birds, is that seabirds um, come back to the exact same spot to breed every single year. Not only like within, uh, uh, you know, within a few centimeters, like exactly where they were wow. <laughs> the year before for, you know, potentially 10, 15, 20, up to 60 years. Um, so I loved that predictability. 
Um, and uh, it made them, it made being able to think about my methods and the, and the skills that I had um, a little bit easier to apply to a scenario that was, you know, more predictable. Okay. So before I, before I ask you about the, the methods in particular, can I quickly ask about how, how do they find such micro, uh, is, is this like they leave a little trail behind? They... <laughs> Yeah, and so this is this is a a, a a fairly sort of classic question, right? Um, how do they find exactly? How do they know exactly where they need to go back every single year? The only answer that I've been able to come up with is the same way that I know where my house is in the city. Um, and and I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, um, it makes sense, right? That that I have the ability to understand where my body is in space, um, and to visualize where uh, my house is and what that looks like, and to visualize the road to get there. Um, that's as far as I've gotten. It's not okay. my area of expertise, but that's kind of for me. That satisfies me as kind of like a way where you're 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 right, like. Um, uh, ants leave chemical trails to follow, um, but that may not be, you know, that may be sort of within their wheelhouse of resources that they have. Seabirds um, have quite a cognitive life. Um, and so for me, it isn't difficult to imagine that they do it pretty much the same way we do. Okay, sort of triangu triangulating based on... Yeah. Like I live across from the Big B, which is down the street from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. That's that's a cool way to think about it. Although although lately our commutes to work have been a lot shorter, <laughs> so maybe we'll forget where we need to go. <laughs> I'm hoping that I just never have to go back. I'm I'm very happy right here. This is very nice for me. It's pretty comfortable, right? Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll see how that changes in the next week or two. <laughs> Okay, so so you said that you're more of a methods uh, person. So yeah. what does that entail? So I come from a physics background, so I have no idea what biological methods or ecology methods look like. So sure. Um, so so originally I started looking at um, population dynamics. So how populations changed over time and what some of the variables would be that influence that. Um, so, you know, the classic one that we that we all kind of think about is uh, human interactions, human presence, um, and sort of human occupation of different habitats and how that might change um, other populations ability to live within that habitat. So that's how it kind of started. Um, I realized that some of the methods were, were good, um, were applicable, but that I would have to learn some new ones. Um, and so then I started kind of collecting a toolkit of, um, of different methods that would allow me to understand like the, the larger picture of how populations are influenced by external factors. Um, by uh, fishing practices, by, by economic fishing practices, for example, um, or large, large scale events like, you know, global climate change. Um, and what I learned is that that toolkit becomes very powerful the more diverse it becomes in disciplinary methods. So we bring in all sorts of different tools from different, di from different disciplines to be able to kind of hone in on answering um, sort of big questions about how things change over time. Okay. So does that, um, 
that sounds like it opens you up to a lot of collaborations with other groups. Uh, you get to meet a lot of different people and yep. pick their brains. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really cool. Can you? It's so fun. Um, <laughs> and it, it definitely has been a theme of my research resilience um, with, within, you know, my fairly short career. Um, I guess now I'm considered to be mid-career, but, um, but so the more collaborative, the more sort of transdisciplinary, um, first of all, the, the better the research, um, for sure, but also the more protected you are from any kind of disruption, um, which is why I don't only do re research in seabirds. In fact, research in seabirds, the seabird world, the community is fairly small. Um, and, you know, you kind of, once you find a spot that you want to occupy, it's not always easy to get into those spots that are already occupied. Um, and so, you know, you either have to develop your own thing or you have to find, you know, ways of collaborating. Um, and depending upon the, the area, sometimes it's a little bit hard to be accepted, you know, for new people to come in. So my research program now is extremely transdisciplinary in order to create that resilience in my research program. So I fill out a whole bunch of grants, I send out a whole bunch of invitations to collaborate, and then I see what I get back. And, <laughs> and if you send out a lot of them, then you get some that are able to then direct where you go in the future. And that's kind of my approach right now to developing my research program. Interesting. I always think uh, with people who are in the biological sciences that the way that the story sort of comes out of their research, it seems almost like they have like a, an overarching mission. Like I want to solve this problem. I want to figure this out. But it sounds like you're much more an exploratory person. It's yeah. And uh, like the problem is that I get really excited about different projects. Um, I, it, I, and it may come off as a little bit of arrogance too, thinking that you can work on anything. Um, but what I, what I find is that I can learn anything. Um, and the other benefit, and I, I would like to say that I did this deliberately, but I'm not sure that I did. Um, the, the benefit is the diversity of collaborators and students that I get to be connected with. Um, you know, we're talking about students from all ages, disciplines, you know, geographic regions and experiences, um, you know, mature students and, and younger students that are coming in, students with, with kids. And, and like my, my lab is incredibly diverse. Um, and then because of that, even the research is better when, you know, I have a student that I supervise who's in the department of of management um, and I happen to be an adjunct professor in the Department of Management because of that student um, you know talking with my student who's doing uh, a, a study on spider physiology um, you should hear what comes out of that conversation uh, it's wonderful and sometimes just funny um, but but it, it has created for me a, a richness an intellectual richness that you know makes me happy to go into work that's cool. Yeah, so, I like. There, there are some challenges to it. Uh -huh. um, there, there are members of the community that don't that don't recognize the value of of that um, as much, um, and it's okay because there's there's a, a huge culture shift 
going on in academia that gets me very excited. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I definitely defer and thank, um, you know, the pioneers that have allowed for, for me to be able to live a fairly, you know, sheltered research career where, yeah, still sometimes that you know people don't get it and so you don't get that grant or whatever but there are you know funding agencies that do recognize um, the, the need for this type of thing even in the traditional funding agencies now there are non-traditional grants that support this type of work so that's great you uh, you mentioned it might come off as arrogant or something that you can do all of these things. It really sounds like you're not saying that you can do whatever, like everything that everybody can do, but it seems like you have a really like a good talent in getting the right people into the right places, finding what they're good at and sort of funneling or directing them in those directions. Maybe, maybe that's a, a nice way to put Thank it. Thank you. I, I've worked hard for that. So, <laughs> so before I uh, came to academia, I, I was in a, a bit of a, non-traditional um, employment situation where I was um, a, an Arctic and Antarctic expedition leader. Um, and I would travel with all sorts of groups, um, you know, worrying about them, <laughs> like, like some kind of like mother hen, you know, don't die on me kind of thing, right? Um, but working with um, a, a diverse group of people with very different motivations and needs um, allowed me to be able to recognize that the best way to get through a situation, especially, you know, in the context of safety, um, was to mobilize everyone's individual asset. Um, and so, you know, for me, uh, the more the people in the room look like me, the less excited I get. Um, because then it's just like, well, okay, you know, we're just one person in the room. Um, but having this, you know, cl true collaboration where everybody uh, brings something different um, is, uh, is, is for me the, the ultimate way to succeed in anything. And the metric uh, that we use in order to determine success for me is not, you know, the individual success of that project, but whether or not they invite you back to the table. And if they do, if you become a usual suspect, uh, then you've achieved your goal. That makes sense. If, uh, <laughs> if you get to keep doing what you want to do, then you're succeeding. It's more That's of right. like a, less of a results oriented approach yeah. more of a process thing it's a process exactly always thinking about the next connection right the next thing and how am i going to help inspire the next great you know project that's going to come from this um recognizing that there's no way that you're going to be able to accomplish it alone so you better have people that like working with you right <laughs> that's <laughs> cool simple. And it goes against some of the traditional ways that we evaluate success uh, within our disciplines. And all of that is changing. So by the time, you know, the, the people that are starting their, their graduate careers now, uh, by the time they get ready to, to think about where it is that they're going to go, I, I really am quite excited about the landscape and how it's going to be different. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> it, uh, so it, it's... Would it be fair to say that you, you really value the mentorship, mentorship aspect of your job more? I'm not going to say more than the, the research output, but. Yeah, I, I love, I love the mentorship and I've, I've, had, I've, I've 
I recognize because of my mentors um, who have demonstrated to me the need to not only be a mentor, but to be an advocate. Um, and so now when I think about mentorship, I think about advocacy. How am I going to be able to leverage my privilege and my power to bring people along with me? So instead, mentorship I find is more about like, oh, just listen, I'll, I'll tell you my life and you'll, you'll figure out what the advice is. Advocacy is actively going out and making those connections and introductions and saying, you should supervise this student, you know, who's going to be graduating from my, from my lab really soon, or you should, you know, you should take the student for this job opportunity and that kind of deal. And I, I spend a lot of time doing that uh, mm -hmm. because other people have spent a lot of time. And if they see this, they will, they will be laughing going, yep, <laughs> a lot of time doing it for me. Um, and it's important to, to make sure that we pass on that, that, that ability if we're able to, um, and I think, I think that that's important. I think when, when people from equity seeking communities achieve a certain level beyond what is, you know, sort of allowed usually, um, they should be given a choice as whether or not they're going to serve as an advocate or whether they're really just going to do what they, you know, what they, what they plan to do and need to do. And, and either strategy is fine. I just feel really good being an advocate. Yeah. <laughs> That um, it sounds like you're almost blend. So in my mind, I see like as a, a professor, you, there's sort of like two streams that you have to work in. There's the, the teaching stream and then there's the research stream. And maybe traditionally those didn't really meet so much. It almost seemed like those were two separate jobs. Yeah. But the sense I'm getting from talking to you is that uh, there's a lot more in common between those than at least for you, then. There can be, absolutely. Um, and, and sort of more directly for me because uh, one third of my research program is in STEM education and post-secondary education. Um, so I do actually, you know, collect data with my class and, and on my class if they give me permission. Um, and so for me, the, the leap um, is, is sort of more obvious and um, and has challenged me to, you know, to think about sort of more creatively within biology research, how we can go about leveraging the power of, of students and, and education. Um, so, so yeah, to me, it's all great. And to me, there's like so many questions that are going to, you know, keep me and my students occupied for the rest of the rest <laughs> of our careers. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. But, you know, like mixing up these lines, um, allows me to consistently up my game in, in teaching. Um, it makes me want to learn how to be a better teacher um, and, uh, and sort of figuring out how to, you know, sell those achievements or those contributions to a more traditional framework for evaluation has been a challenge, but ultimately, um, you know, it, it's fine. It's possible. Um, mm -hmm. You just have to develop a few little skills about how to do it what language to use and then it then it's a no-brainer right yeah uh so maybe this this transitions kind of nicely into uh the next phase that we sort of discussed but uh something that i've kind of noticed from getting closer to uh people who teach in university settings and like helping with being a teaching assistant and head mm -hmm. TAing stuff it seems like uh there's like a very standard way of going about teaching um there's like the lecture situation uh it's when people tend to get new courses or 
when they're handed a course, it's very much like what did what was going on before. I'm not going to really change too much and keep going along the the same path. Yeah. But uh, these days, it seems like uh, <laughs> we kind of have to alter that a lot. So maybe maybe the, the the more ambitious people who take on courses were sort of forced to do more traditional type courses and couldn't really innovate so much. And now it seems like everybody's being forced to innovate. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your approach to, uh, I guess most of this is going to be distance studies um, stuff. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it has been the last couple of months have challenged me um, to, to think about, you know, this dramatic change in student experience of learning, um, and what my original goals for those, um, what the student experience was, uh, how to create it in not, not just one classroom anymore, but now literally 900 different classrooms, right? We started out with 900 students um, in a first year biology class, and now they are in different time zones, in different you know, contexts and all of this stuff um, caused me to really think about what remote learning is um, and how it can be accessible what the barriers are and, and, and what my priorities were and, and my, my sort of social contract to my students too, in terms of my obligations. Um, and uh, I, I, I tell you these last couple of months, I've learned more about teaching than I ever have. <laughs> what, you're right about like the initial, the initial sort of design of the course mattered. Um, in how it then got translated to a remote learning environment. Um, and I would love to study that, but like, it's too soon. We're going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of my questions is, how did the course design influence um, what happened after all of our university classrooms got shut down? And I, I think um, my course experience, uh, my course was pretty resilient, um, you know, by, for example, you know, we had already evaluated most of the of the students. Um, we we I think we had them up to about sixty five to seventy percent of the course had already been graded, right? Okay. Um, and uh, whereas a more traditional course, they might only have done that thirty percent midterm, right, or that kind of deal. Mm -hmm. So there were all sorts of ways that the course that I, that I teach um, kind of made it through with less of a, a problem than, than other ones might have. Um, certainly our labs were disrupted <laughs> and all of that, but, um, but it was pretty easy for, for us to be able to take what we were doing and put it into a, a remote format. Your observation though, about how more non-traditional courses may have had to become more traditional in their sort of lecture style when done remotely is absolutely accurate. Um, there was a lot less of my, like, I couldn't reach out and say, what do you think right? <laughs> to the screen? Because they couldn't see where I was pointing, you know, that kind of deal. Right. Um, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it really challenged us to find ways of being interactive with our students, at least to some degree. Um, and we did that through chats and through, you know, um, online polling systems and all of those things to try at least to connect. But what we realized um, was that we switched platforms because you know one platform totally crashed on us and another one totally like didn't serve us. 
what, what we realized is that it doesn't matter what platform you use, it doesn't matter what polling technology, the technology itself, right? The trademark technology didn't matter. It was the ability to teach from a point of empathy, of understanding, and this is something that, that ties into my ability to, to work on collaborative teams. If you understand who your audience is, who your, your person is, and you behave in a way that demonstrates respect for that, under, for, for that, for that person and where they're coming from, then you're going to get through. It's going to be fine, right? Um, frequent communication, um, you need to communicate way more um, when you're teaching remotely than when you are face-to-face. Um, you have to communicate not only more, you have to communicate more on a human level, on a personal level, right? So we talked about what was going on with our pets and our kids and our life at home and just little snippets, right? Obviously not like a TMI overload, but, but like just ways of, of communicating in a way that replaces that loss of community, right? And doesn't just throw the instruction, um, by being face to face, we we were a community in that room for you know for fifty minutes a few times a a, a week, and we lost that. Um, and technology doesn't replace that. It's it's the content and the the voices that you use through the technology that that bring that up again. Um, and I think I think um, one of the the big lessons in that is to be able to identify what those are uh, and figure out how to deliver it. Uh, through a, a piece of technology. Right. So I guess what I, I was imagining uh, we were going to talk about was what are the, the solutions that you found for uh, making these online courses happen? And like, I don't know, like what is the URL for the, the solution to all of this stuff? But it's- for it all sounds, of the problems. <laughs> yeah, or like, uh, what, did, what did you build from the ground up that solved all of the problems? But it really just sounds like uh, the, yeah. the, the fix is just listening and talking to your students and, and yep. assessing their needs on a- Yes, um, and because we had to do it so quickly, um, we definitely benefited from the understanding that we needed to do those things. Like we, we know who our students are, um, you know, at least on a sort of generalized model, right? We know that they have um, uh, diverse needs, they have diverse abilities to access um, certain ways of understanding what we're saying and all of those things. And so the technology thread was clunky and embarrassing. We called it the inception of teaching because we had, we had Zoom, rooms inside zoom rooms right just to be able to provide access to all of our 900 students um but we also had to have for example like just in terms of the the specifics we also had to have um closed captioning going on live so that our students who are hearing impaired can join us and experience that community building that we were working on live otherwise it wouldn't have worked for them right mm -hmm. so you have to have closed captioning um, in order to do that you have to then tag it on to this program and buy this license and do all of those things right um, but coming at it with not with the technology toolkit but with the I need to serve this audience with these different needs um, makes it pretty easy to figure out what technology you're going to string along. Mm. I like the way that you, you phrase that. It's uh, kind of refreshing to hear. It's almost like a, 
the university is like a, a business that's serving uh, customers. <laughs> like you have to address the customer's need and provide them with the product that <laughs> they actually want to pay for. Yeah. It's so a little bit different than what you normally <laughs> hear of like, students yeah. have to come to my class and they have to absorb. <laughs> Well, they have to be able to engage, right? Mm -hmm. um, the business model falls down if you use, you know, um, if you use profit as motivation, right? For me, instead of profit, it's number of students engaged, right? Mm -hmm. That's my payoff, right? That's my bottom line. So then the business model is perfect as an analogy because, you know, how am I going to be able to make sure um, that all students are engaged? And, and one of the things that I've learned about this is that by demonstrating that engaging all students is a priority. You have students who don't necessarily need access to whatever, you know, closed captioning, for example, coming up and saying, I, I respect and I like that you did that, right? I see that you did that, even though I don't need it, I value the, the priority or the, the, the need for it. Um, and I think then you become, you, you model then um, sort of this, this air of, of, of being inclusive and, and, and recognizing that, you know, that there are these, these diverse needs and wants and preferences and all of that. Sometimes I fail miserably, right? Um, because we are such, such a population. There's so many different people in the room, right? And mm -hmm. And as it gets bigger and bigger from, you know, from the groups that I was leading in Antarctica where there were 20 people, now we're going up to 900 or 1200 in terms of class size. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly being corrected. I'm constantly being exposed to different things. And what has um, saved me so far is my willingness to, to learn uh, and to adapt uh, and to try new things um, and to see if it works. Um, rather than just having this kind of closed mindset, no, this is the tool that I use, this is how I use it, kind of, you know, that kind of deal. <laughs> Such a, a scientific way of, of thinking about it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really exciting thing that, uh, that I'm personally excited for. I, I recently um, looked into how conferences had been changing uh, and wrote a little thing about that and was what very excited. Well, I was mostly at, excited about the idea that we could sort of build up conferences again from the ground up with accessibility in mind. Nice. And then I started thinking, well, in uh, looking at, at your work and stuff, started thinking about how this could be translated to how the classroom is rebuilt with accessibility in mind. Because I think a lot of the solutions have been sort of ad hoc, like band-aid solutions, like, and then because of that, not a lot of the things incorporated with each other very well. They didn't really mesh so well. So this first iteration of maybe summer courses, I think things might end up being a bit clunky, but what, what, do, you, what do you think is gonna happen going forward? Do you think there's gonna be like a, a new push to have like a more accessibility resources that fit together or how, how do you think that's gonna turn out? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think that some, some of us will use this as an opportunity to redesign. Um, I loved your, your ground up kind of redesign of a conference. Let's just start again rather than creating these clunky retrofit pieces around, around the edge. Um, 
and then there will be some that 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 won't and we'll just have to wait for them to retire um, <laughs> but uh, but but certainly it is an opportunity um, opportunity or, or taking advantage of opportunity requires resourcing um, and right now in this like you know on on May 8th I'm not seeing the resourcing um, that's going to need to come uh, in order for us to be able to seize the opportunity. I am still optimistic, um, and I hope that higher education across Canada um, does um, provide the resourcing necessary. I do see it as a good investment, um, an investment in the future, in the future of enrollments and participation and inclusivity. Um, and I'd like to think that they're going to come around. Um, so I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to like seize the resources to do it, <laughs> um, and and hopefully it'll happen at a at a large scale. Um, if not, it'll happen at a smaller scale to some of us, and that may be just enough uh, to get students to 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 stick with us and to to go through it. Um, I'm just not sure. I I worry a lot. I worry that the fall is is going to um, cause many students, especially from equity-seeking communities, uh, to, to be forced to take a gap year or to choose to take a gap year. So I worry that, um, you know, a, an unrepresentative sample of the population is going to be able to move through first year um, while others have to wait. And then I worry about in the fall 2021, uh, whether there's going to be a double cohort uh, effect um, in a way that that causes you know further marginalization of, of students um, and so I, I worry a lot I'm very stressed about about what is happening um, I'm also very <laughs> this is where my arrogance comes back I think I'm also very stressed about my lack of power to to be able to help in understanding that that what's happening now requires a systems approach to um, to coming up with a solution. It requires a long-term solution because we are talking about students' education and education has huge consequences in students' lives. Um, and, and, and graduate students in particular have been left out of the conversation when it comes to planning um, and, and comes to helping them through. So, so it's been frustrating because you know my sphere of power is really with these 900 students in my class. And uh, that pisses me off. That, that makes me angry because I have things that I wanna say. I, I'm, I, I, wanna, I wanna help do an audience analysis of, of the true, you know, the true sphere of, of influence that, that what we're going through now has had. Um, to help others, you know, bring their talents to the table to come up with this like universal design. Um, but I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna guess that that's not happen yeah that is frustrating when you have the people who are they want to solve the problem not able to solve the problem it sounds like uh yeah <laughs> it's exactly what you try to do with your research group and your students is put the right people in the right places and you just yeah. need your bosses to, <laughs> or the people above you to also have that uh, let me facilitate a meeting <laughs> Yeah, um, and and not to say that other people don't have these these skills and abilities, um, uh, and and certainly.
certainly there have been some universities in Canada that, that have uh, adopted some pretty creative um, approaches within, again, their sphere of power. And, and what, I, what I think we need to do is broaden our spheres of power um, to be one big Canadian sphere. Uh, so that the solutions that we come up with are are as equitable as they can be. Um, that they won't sort of marginalize students who are in community colleges versus those who are in, um, you know, in universities versus those who are, you know, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, like yeah. we came up with a, with a global or global national solution. Um, I feel like it would be more accessible to, to everyone. Um, and there are realities, right? You know, higher education is managed at the province level. So that's a sphere you've got to burst. Um, and and maybe, maybe the fact that, you know, it's an emergency, um, you know, makes it even more difficult to start, you know, bursting these walls. But I think that what's happened to our education system is evidence of the need to um, maybe more slowly and cautiously burst these walls down so that we become more resilient in, in the future. Yeah, uh, so to quickly go back to a point that uh, I didn't really think of, I, I always saw this as like a, a great opportunity to fix a bunch of things and things are gonna get better, but uh, you bring up a really good point of having a, a double cohort uh, coming up. Yeah. And I guess, I'm assuming that the, the issue with that is that any sort of accessibility resources that you have would be doubly strained and... Yeah, uh, and so I, I, I don't like making predictions, but no. if there is an accessibility problem, an equity uh, and accessibility problem in fall 2020, it's going to create a bit of a bottleneck and selection for those students who have more privilege. Um, so unlike the double cohort of 2003-2004 when they got rid of grade 13 in Ontario, um, and that was a, that was a lesson uh, that we all got through, but the population moving through wasn't selected for based on their privilege. This one might very well do that, um, and it might force students to take a gap year. And if we're forced students to taking a gap year were selecting based on based on privilege so so the double cohort may not happen because those students may never return um, or if they are able to return after a year um, it is going to skew the population towards a population that uh, we really need to support um, and there will be a, a competition for resources um, that, that they might not necessarily have had before. Not to say that, that students from equity-seeking communities aren't in a competitive environment for resources. They are. It will just be exacerbated. Um, and so I worry, and I, I wonder, um, you know, are we able to start thinking about that now? I think the answer is no, as far as um, upper administration of universities go. They're really sort of working in the moment um, and uh, there are some universities that have established committees to think about the future um, and I definitely you know tip my hat to them um, and uh, and hope that they're going to be able to come up with recommendations for how we can mitigate whatever the possible consequences are right okay so I see what you're saying the the universities that have started to think further in the future it would be nice if uh every university could maybe send a delegate and then you'd create some sort of super uh, yeah. <laughs> group to, to come up with solutions. That seems <laughs> reasonable. Yeah, 
<laughs> um, and of course, meeting these days is impossible, right? But, um, but to have some kind of conversation. Um, unfortunately, the conversation, because of the tradition of, of higher education being the portfolio of the province, is really happening at, at the provincial level. And there are, there are interactions that happen um, um, at the provincial level across universities. Um, and of course, though, some provinces don't have that many universities or, or colleges, right? And others have like a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there's a bit of a, 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 an inequity in distribution there, right? Um, yeah. But that's fine. Um, what, uh, what I do hope, though, is that there is long-term planning and that there is planning at the national level. Um, and uh, I think it's more likely that there's going to be long-term planning and less likely that there's going to be a conversation at the national level. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to keep you too, too long. I think we covered some really interesting stuff and certainly some things worth discussing. I hope uh, people who listen will. Uh, is there a place that we can contact you or? Yeah. <laughs> Please, I especially graduate students um, because um, first of all, I'm interested in your questions and your ideas about education. Um, if you would like to do research in education for your next level, definitely get in touch. Um, and if you want to share your experience of, of going through what's happened, um, it's really important that we understand um, you know, how, how all students at all levels have been experiencing um, this particular event. Um, that the event that shall not be named. <laughs> we haven't named it. <laughs> the C um, word. <laughs> the C word. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in fact, um, you know, we've we may be launching a bit of a research project on this exact thing in the future. Um, I, I'm not collecting data yet because, again, way too soon. Yeah. Um, but uh, but certainly to to spark a conversation, uh, the best way to find me is on Twitter. Okay. Um, and uh, um, just uh, just my name uh, is the uh, is the account, um, and certainly email or or anything. Um, if you want a video chat about what you should do, get in touch, and uh, we can set up a meeting. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much. Actually, yeah. Quick little point is uh, just being on Twitter, which I think most academics should do. It's it's really opened my eyes to um, things that other people need. Yeah. <laughs> I personally don't really need too much. It's, it's, I'm in a pretty privileged position, but uh, it's definitely opened my eyes to that kind of thing. And maybe that's a, a good start for people just to, to start to see what, what needs to be done for other people. Yep, exactly. Any, any last parting uh, word, any suggestions of like sciencey things that are happening online? Any, anything that you've been <laughs> interested in lately? I know Pi well, of Science is coming up. I don't know I if you know what that one. So I, my, my official plug, the thing that I am plugging um, these days is Pi of Science for sure. Okay. Um, super fun. How wonderful that, um, that they've been able to, to transfer some of that, again, community building experience online. I'm, I'm just so stoked for it. Um, and I think, you know, being engaged, I think Twitter, I, you know, obviously I like Twitter. I, I value it. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's a really good way of keeping in touch with the rest of the community. So, so yeah, definitely get to tweeting if you haven't, because the best time when you're ready to announce your big thing is not the time to open up a Twitter account. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. This was uh, really informative and I, yeah. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of you know, consolidate some of the ideas into, into a more accessible narrative. <laughs>
Yeah, I certainly have a lot more things that I want to look into now. Uh, cool. <laughs> great. Wonderful. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you.